You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Our God, it is your word that we turn because we believe that in your word we know you and we have come to know you by your word. Thank you, Father, for the revelation of your truth and your nature in the pages of Scripture. And we ask that you would give us grace as we seek to humble ourselves and obey what is written in your word. Help us to think clearly. Help us to understand the Spirit's intention in this passage so that you might be glorified in the hearts and the lives of your people as we render unto you the obedience to which your word has called us and which you are due as our great God and King. We thank you for these things and pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, John chapter 7 is six months prior to the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. And by this time in the life of Christ, it is difficult to imagine that there is anyone in all of the land of Israel, from north to south, Dan to Beersheba, anyone at all who has not heard of and was familiar with the name of Jesus and his claims and what he had done. Everybody heard about Christ by this point. And not only that, but most people had formed an opinion about him, either negatively or favorably. But everybody had heard of Jesus. His notoriety was preceded by that of John the Baptist, who you remember back in chapter 1 had stirred up the crowds and, and gained quite a few followers. And John did everything he could to divest himself of attention and followers and to point everybody to Jesus. And it was two and a half years prior to the events of John 7 that Jesus' public ministry really began in Jerusalem when he cleansed the temple and rebuked the religious leaders and drove all of the money changers and everybody else out of the temple. Uh, That was when it began. And since that point in John 2, Jesus has been in and out of Jerusalem a number of times. He has traveled throughout the land of Israel, mostly in the north, in in the Galilee area of Capernaum. He has taught, he has had many confrontations with the religious leaders. He has healed a number of people. He has raised people from the dead. He has walked on water. He has multiplied bread and fish on two different occasions and done miracles before not just a couple of dozen, but thousands of people. And not only had the majority of people seen or heard him, but those who had not seen or heard him had seen or heard of him. So by the time we get to John chapter 7, we read at the beginning that before Jesus even walked into Jerusalem for his final arrival in the south, that people were already divided and had an opinion of him. Some people said, he's a good man, and other people said, no, no, he leads the people astray. The beginning of the chapter, John chapter 7. By the time we get to the middle of John chapter 7, some people were saying, don't the religious leaders really know that he is the Christ since they're allowing him to teach in the temple? And the other people said, no, 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 no. They obviously can't know that he is the Christ because we we don't know where the Christ is going to come from and we know where Jesus is from, therefore he can't be the Christ. Then we get to the end of John chapter 7. We see that by the time Jesus has finished all of his teaching in the temple for the Feast of Tabernacles, that the entire nation was divided. Everybody was divided. There were no it would seem at least, that there were no two people who had the same opinion about Jesus. Everybody fell into all of these various camps. And we looked at three of them last week, and we saw that between verse 40 and 44, there were three different groups of people when we saw that the people, the crowds, were divided. Verse 43 sums it up. There was a division that occurred among the people concerning Jesus. People began to fall into these different camps. 
Some people said he is the prophet, the one spoken of in Deuteronomy 18, who was to come that Moses promised God would raise up a prophet like me. Some people said that's him. Other people said he certainly must be the Christ, the son of David, the king of Israel. He's the Messiah, the anointed one. And then there was a third camp who said he's not either. He's not either the prophet, nor is he the Christ, because when the Christ comes, we know two things about him. He will be a son of David, and second, he will come from Bethlehem, the town of David. And of course, that objection we saw last week was that objection which they, they raised, which they thought objected to Jesus' claims to be the Messiah, was in fact a tacit admission that his claims were true, since a little bit of investigation would have revealed that he was the son of David, he was a descendant of David, and he did come from Bethlehem. So that was the division among the people, verses 40 to 44. Now we're going to look today at the division among the leaders in verses 45 through 52. That was the passage that we just read, the division among the leaders. Now what you're going to see here in these verses, you are going to see a rabid, irrational, hot hatred for the Son of God that manifests itself in almost the most irrationable form conceivable. You are going to get a glimpse into the heart of these Pharisees and these leaders of the people, and what you are going to see is not pretty at all. This is their rabid hatred of Jesus Christ on full display as they begin to turn even on their own to defend their own position. And so you see this vitriolic, hostile hatred for Christ in verses 45 to 52. Now there are three, like with verses 40 to 44, there are three groups of people or three peoples mentioned in verses 45 to 52 as well. And here are the three. We see, first of all, that there were officers. Second, there were Pharisees and rulers. And third, there is Nicodemus. Nicodemus being a person, not really a group. But basically three sort of characters or groups of characters on display in verses 45 to 52. The officers, the Pharisees, and the, the rulers of the people, and then Nicodemus. And here's what's interesting. It, the, the reaction of the Pharisees and the leadership really is what we, what we, when we see them express their sentiments toward Jesus, it's in reaction to the officers and in reaction to Nicodemus. So they don't really come out and say what they believe or what they're saying, but what we really see is their heart revealed when the officers come in and they respond to the officers. We see what they say. And then when they respond to Nicodemus, who was one of their own. This is a fascinating passage. Because here we have Nicodemus, somebody who came up earlier, now coming into the narrative, and we get a glimpse behind closed doors of what was going on when the leaders, the Pharisees, listened to what Jesus said and how they responded to the people who even dared to speak remotely positively about Jesus. By the way, how do you think that John knew what went on behind closed doors with the Pharisees and the leaders of the Jews? How do you think he knew this? Now, John wasn't there. So what was his inside source? It was Nicodemus. Right? He's not a believer in chapter 3. He's pretty much, we know for certain he's a believer in chapter 19 because he comes up again in this gospel. In John chapter 7, we can't really tell if Nicodemus is a believer or not. But I can guarantee you this, that if John had an inside source inside the, the Pharisees and the leadership, it was probably Nicodemus. Nicodemus probably got with John at some point after this and said, look, um, you're not going to believe what happened on that day at the great feast just six months ago. Let me tell you the story. So what we get is a little glimpse, I think, from through the mouth of Nicodemus and then through the pen of John as to what happened among the Pharisees and the leadership. Let's take a look at it. We'll divide it into two, two spots or two sections. First, the response of the Pharisees to the officers. And then second, the response of the Pharisees to Nicodemus. The response to the officers in verses 45 through 49. And then the response to Nicodemus, verses 50 to 52. The response of the officers, look at verse 45. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they said to them, Why did you not bring him? Now, this is not the first time we've heard of these officers. You remember back up in verse 32? The Pharisees, when they heard the crowd saying, 
Look, and when the Christ comes, he's not going to do more signs than this man has done, right? They were looking at the signs that Jesus did and said, this could be evidence that he might indeed be the Christ. We can't imagine that Christ would do more than he's done. And when the Pharisees, verse 32, heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. So they had already sent these officers. Now we get a glimpse at the officers coming back. They had sent the officers into the crowd to seize Jesus. Now here is what I think, this is sanctified speculation, here is what I think that that order entailed. I think that that order entailed saying to the officers, we want you to go into the crowd, hang out among the crowd, and when an opportune time comes for you to seize Jesus, when he is not with the crowd, when he is away from the people, so that there's no chance of causing a riot with those who are following him, when he is alone or when you see him wandering off somewhere, that's when we want you to seize him. I don't think that they were ordered to storm into the temple and seize him. Well, why would I say that? Because the Pharisees, though they want to arrest Jesus, they don't want to risk a riot. They can't afford that. So I think that they gave the officers just a general command to take him into custody at the first opportune moment. Now, now the officers have come back to the Pharisees at some point. After Jesus' gracious invitation in verses 37 and 38, the officers have come back, and the Pharisees, the first thing that they notice is that they do not have Jesus in tow with them. And so they ask him, where is he? We sent you to seize him. Now you've come back empty-handed. Where is he? Why did you not bring him with you? And look at their response. This is great. The officer said, Never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. Never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. So here's what happened. They hung out in the temple, and they sat, and they listened to Jesus' teaching, waiting for an opportunity, opportune moment to seize him, sometime that he was away from the people. And as they sat there, and they listened to him, they heard teaching like you and I have never, ever been exposed to. I, I wish, I wish that I, we could, I could have sat as a fly on the wall in the temple and listened to Jesus teach in person. We get a glimpse of it in the Gospels. But to, to read teaching and to hear teaching is two entirely different things. I think that listening to Jesus would have just captivated even, even the most dull-minded individual. Even the person who... You guys fall asleep during my messages. I don't think anybody ever fell asleep during Jesus' message. Never, ever. I think it was impossible. I think he spoke in such a way, with such profound teaching and such simple words, as to captivate even the most tired individual. I believe he spoke with such grace, such conviction, such love, such power, such authority, that every time he spoke, and we see this in the Gospels, people walked away saying, we have never heard anything like this. The scribes teach us, and the Pharisees teach us, and the rulers teach us. We have never heard anybody teach like this man teaches. I think that those officers knew, just by listening to Jesus teach, this is no ordinary man. No other man has ever taught like this. You see, Jesus didn't have to quote Scripture. All he had to do was speak, and it was Scripture. He spoke with authority. He didn't quote other authorities. He didn't have to quote and say, Rabbi Gamaliel says this, and Rabbi Shmuley says this. He just had to quote, or he just had to speak, and it was Scripture. And people listened, and they were captivated by it. The officers were captivated. And I think verbally their hands were tied. They walked into the temple, intending to seize him. They sat, they listened, they waited, they heard what he taught. We just cannot bring ourselves to lay our hands on this man. Like the Roman soldier at the foot of the cross who said, Surely this man is the Son of God. I think that these men listened to Jesus teach and they said, We, no, we would rather go back and face the wrath of the Pharisees than to lay hands on this man and to keep him from teaching. So that's what they said when they came back. No man has ever taught the way this man teaches. Right? Which is saying to the people who are the teachers of the people, what does that say about their teaching? Right? I mean, look, if you said to me, Look, Jim, 
I heard a guy preach, and I've never heard anybody preach the way this guy preaches. Oh, in my mind, well, it instantly tells me, okay, well, I know where I'm at on the ladder, right? And, and that's, that would be a tacit admission from the Pharisees, too. They go into the teachers of the people. Look, nobody's ever taught the way this man teaches. Oh, what does that say about me? That's what they would have to be thinking. So it's a bit of a tacit kind of acknowledgement that this man teaches way above anything we have ever heard from the people who are our teachers. And that was a humbling thing for them to have to hear, especially when they thought so highly of themselves as they did. So the Pharisees get angry, and rightly so, and their response to this admission is nothing less than a vehement string of rebuke and uh, uh, disapproval and reproving of them for their statement. The, The officer's statement is a kind one. Do you notice that? What they said of Jesus is very kind. He's a gifted teacher. And we can tell from his teaching that he is not an ordinary man. That's a very kind thing to say of Jesus. Notice that they have not come out and confessed him to be the Christ. They've just said he's a good teacher. Second thing I want you to notice is that that is an, that is an honest admission. They could have lied, couldn't they? They could have come back and said there was no opportune moment. I mean, you should have seen the crowds in the temple. It was crazy. The man is never alone. We just never had an opportunity. There was always a crowd with him everywhere they went. They could have lied to the leaders. But they knew... They knew that they could not escape this one thing. This man teaches like nobody else teaches. And they're honest about it. And they simply say, this is the reason we couldn't apprehend him. Because of his teaching. And we were captivated by it. They could have lied, but they didn't. So they're honest. But their honesty ends up being turned against them by the reaction of the Pharisees to the officers. Look at verse 47. The Pharisees then answered them, and there are three statements that they make. Watch it. You've not also been led astray, have you? That's number one. No one of the rulers of the Pharisees has believed in him, has he? That's number two. And number three, but this crowd, which does not know the law, is accursed. There are three statements that they make. All three of these, is it's a rapid-fire reproval, a rebuke. It is a rapid-fire insult is what it is. All three of these things is a different accusation and a different insult. And by the way, for, to those, for those who reject the truth and hate the truth and love darkness and hate the light they will use the exact same arguments against those of us who love the truth as these men do against the officers. All three of these arguments are the same today as they have been. And we're going to go through each one of these three, and then I'll show you how it's the same today as it was back then. The very first one, they accused the officers of being gullible. Look at the sentence. The Pharisees then answered them, You've not also been led astray, have you? What does that say to you? You come to me and say, Jim, I saw this, or I like this, or I I think this or this thing, and this is what I believe, and I say to you, you're not, you haven't been duped, have you? That, that implies that you're gullible. Really? You believe that? You believe that nonsense? You've been led astray? That's what they're implying of the officers. You have been taken in by this backcountry hick, this country preacher, this mediocre Galilean. He has duped you too? He has led you astray? It's a loaded question. When you present something like that to somebody, what, what is the person's response? What do they want to say? No, no, no. No, no, no. Sorry, you misunderstood me. See, it's a loaded question intended really to push them into their camp. You haven't been led astray, have you? Nobody wants to say, yeah, I was duped. Yeah, I got tricked. I bought it hook, line, and sinker. He led me astray too. It just shows how gullible and shallow my thinking is. Nobody wants to say that. So they present the, the case in such a way as to suggest that the officers have been deceived. They've been tricked because they're gullible. They'll believe almost anything. You haven't been led astray by him as well, have you? I mean, we would expect this from the crowds. The crowds are a bunch of idiots. They don't know anything. But you guys, we expected more of you guys. You haven't been tricked into this too, have you? You know how that happened? You know how that's leveled against us today? Same thing is leveled against us today. Here's what it sounds like. You don't really believe that a man swallowed a fish, do you? You don't really believe that the universe is young and not old, do you? 
you don't really believe that God created this whole place in six literal 24-hour days just a few thousand years ago, do you? You don't still believe that homosexuality is a sin, do you? I mean, don't you know that we don't live in that irrational, unscientific, bygone era any longer? We've come into the age of enlightenment. You haven't been deceived into believing what's really written in that book. You, you certainly don't still believe today that a man walked on water, that he raised people from the dead, and that he fed multitude from bread and fishes. You certainly still don't believe today that a man can part a sea and a whole nation can go across, or the plagues that are in Exodus, and the list goes on and on and on. You haven't been led and duped into believing that silly religious nonsense, have you? See that? Those who hate the truth love to cast the argument in such a way that you and I look like gullible fools for believing the truth. And really it's they who are the ones who are the gullible fools for believing that nothing turned into everything and then exploded and became an organized everything. They're the gullible ones for believing that. And yet they like to cast the argument in such a way that you and I look for fools, look like fools and gullible ones at that for just believing what is plainly written in God's Word. That's the first argument. You haven't been deceived by him as well, have you? Right? A loaded question intended to push you into their camp. The second statement is really intended to show just how out of touch and ignorant, possibly, these officers were. Look at verse 48. No one of the rulers or the Pharisees has believed in him, has he? That's the second question. And this is all this is is an argument from authority. And it's an illegitimate argument and appeal from authority. But here's basically what it boils down to. Look, of all the people in the land of Israel, if anybody should be able to recognize the Messiah when he appears, it's us. We are the Pharisees. We know the law. We know the word. We know the scriptures. We study it daily. We have recited it. We have memorized it. We have studied it. We know the minutia of it. If anyone is going to be able to recognize the Messiah when he arrives, it is us. And yet none, nobody of all of the rulers, of all of the Pharisees, of all of the leadership of our nation, nobody in this whole council of religious leaders has, has affirmed what you guys are thinking that you're about to affirm. None of us has believed upon him, has he? Not a one of us. None among us. None among us. Verse 50, that's coming, Nicodemus. But their statement is really an overstatement. None of the rulers of the Pharisees has believed upon this man. And so what they're trying to do is, is show that these officers, or suggest to these officers that they're out of touch with really the leadership of the nation. And that same thing happens today, right? When the appeal to us is made like this. There is nobody who wears a, a white lab coat, no scientist, who seriously takes, takes the Bible seriously and believes it. Right? Nobody who has a degree, none of the intellectuals, none of the teachers. You go to a, a university campus and suggest that God created everything by special creation. What do you, you know what you're going to get? You're going to get this argument. There's not anybody on staff at this university who believes that this is the product of special creation. It's the exact same argument. It's an argument from authority. None of the smart people believe this. What does that say about you if you believe it? You're not one of the smart people. So they're trying to pigeonhole you into their camp. I posted something on my Facebook page a couple of months ago, uh, an argument from Design for Creation, and I had a friend of mine who I go to, went to Bible college with who should know better. He posted a, a little link to uh, something by Francis Collins, who is President Obama's special advisory on genetic mutations and DNA, something else for health and human, whatever it is, blah, 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 service in the country. And he's supposed to be this gigantic intellectual. Well, he is an evangelical who has embraced Darwinism. So he is an evangelical Christian who thinks Darwinism is okay. He posted this on my Facebook page as if I was supposed to say, oh, okay, I guess all the smart people believe that I'm wrong. So I'm just going to rewrite my entire worldview because the guy in the white coat says that 
God's word can't be trusted. That's what we're supposed to do. It's nothing but an intimidation tactic. Listen, I don't care, and you shouldn't care, what somebody's tenure is or their position is or their diploma is or their degree is or their job or whatever else. It does not matter if what they say contradicts Scripture. They are ignorant fools, period. They do not know the truth. This is the truth, and when somebody disagrees with this, they are wrong. And it doesn't matter what their position is, and it doesn't matter if they say every intellectual on the face of the planet disagrees with you. If God agrees with you, it's fine. You stand on good ground. If God agrees with you, you are right. Because God is right. So it doesn't matter what any of the intellectuals say. None of the rulers, none of the Pharisees has believed this. So you shouldn't either. It's a stupid argument. Who cares what they believe? The question is, is it true? Does Does it ever occur to anybody that the intellectuals and the guys in the white coats might have other reasons for not believing this other than the fact that it's not true? Maybe they have a tenure to protect. Maybe they have a position that they're trying to guard. Maybe it's a salary or a reputation or some other reason why they reject the truth. Maybe it's a bias against the light and for darkness. Maybe they actually hate the one true God and will do anything in their power to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Maybe it's that. It's very seldom the fact that it's not true. It's not the fact that it's not true. So, that's the second argument. The first one is, you're gullible. Second, you're out of touch with the guys who should know better. By the way, the Pharisees should have known. Right? If anybody in the nation should have recognized the Messiah when he showed up, they should have. But did they? No. That's not proof that Jesus wasn't the Messiah. You know what it's proof of? They're going to be more accountable in their day of judgment for rejecting and missing something that they should have recognized. And they had no excuse not to recognize it when he showed up. By the way, they did recognize him. They did know it. They never argued against that. What they were arguing for was, we need to kill him. That was their argument. We need to kill him. People say he's the Messiah. No, I know. We need to kill him. He's doing signs. We need to kill him. The whole nation is going to believe in him. We need to kill him. That was their argument. We need to kill him. They started it in John chapter 7, verse 1, and they've been following that for the last 18 months, really, from John chapter 5. They wanted to kill Jesus. They never argued the credentials. They never argued the signs. They couldn't deny the signs. They never tried to deny the signs. They just simply said, we need to kill him so that he won't do any more signs. Now, the third argument. You're gullible. You're out of touch. The third one, this is in verse 49. This crowd, which does not know the law, is accursed. It's ignorant. Now, the Pharisees are not denying that the law, that the crowd had a working knowledge of Scripture. That's not what they're saying. From a Pharisee perspective, what they were saying was this. The crowd, though they know Scripture and, uh, and, and they know of Scripture, they're really ignorant of Scripture because we have heaped all of these laws and rules and traditions and regulations and everything on top of Scripture. And this crowd, the hoi polloi, the people out there, they don't obey the Scriptures the way that we do. And they are ignorant and they, they really don't pursue righteousness the way that we pursue righteousness. And so they're ignorant of Scripture. That's what they're saying. It wasn't that the people didn't have any knowledge of Scripture. It's that the people didn't follow Scripture the way the Pharisees did. Look, if you were a normal person, you weren't a Pharisee, and you had heaped upon you all the regulations that the Pharisees heaped upon the people, you know what you would have done? You would have done the same thing most people did. They threw up their hands and say, whatever. I'm not interested in it. I'll just obey what I can. And they gave up. And because of that, the Pharisees said they're cursed. Because they don't keep all of our traditions with the Sabbath and everything else. This crowd, the masses, are ignorant, and they are cursed. By the way... If the people were ignorant and the Pharisees' job was to teach the people, what does that say about the Pharisees? See, I wouldn't want to say that. If I got up here and said, you know what, you are a bunch of stupid fools. You really don't know Scripture at all. Does that say more about you or me? It says more about me, right? The Pharisees' job was to teach the people. Nicodemus was a teacher of the people. Their job was to teach. If the people were ignorant, it was the Pharisees' responsibility. It was their fault. But that's what they're saying about the crowd. By the way, that's the same thing they'll say about you if you believe the truth. 
You're ignorant. You just don't know. If you had a degree like Francis Collins, you would embrace Darwinism too. If you just knew the full truth, you would reject Scripture and embrace what we say. The same argument. And it should be rejected by you, just as it should have been rejected by them. That, that's a three-line three of attack. You are gullible, you're out of touch, and you're ignorant. You're stupid. You're just like the crowd. Now look at verse 50. This is the response of the, peop- of the leadership to Nicodemus. Verse 50. Nicodemus, and notice that John gives us two pieces of information about Nicodemus. First, he who came to him before. That's John's way of saying this is the same Nicodemus that I mentioned back in chapter 3. This is the Nicodemus who came to him before. The second piece of information John gives us about Nicodemus is that he was one of them. Remember back from chapter 3, verse 1. It says there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night. And later on, Jesus said to Nicodemus, you're a teacher of the people. So we know that Nicodemus was a ruler, he was a Pharisee, and he was a teacher of the people. So now John is telling us this is the same Nicodemus. He is a ruler, he is a Pharisee, he is a teacher of the people. Nicodemus was one of them there in the in the group of people who are responding to the officers. Now here's the irony of it, and this I think is beautiful. The officers have come back. Where where do you where where's Jesus? No man taught like this man teaches. You are ignorant, you are gullible, and you are out of touch. Nobody, nobody among us has believed in him. Not a single Pharisee, not a single ruler, not a single teacher of the Jews. And at that moment, <clears throat> excuse me, Nicodemus, who was one of them, raises his hand. And he raises an objection, it's a good objection. Now, was Nicodemus at this point a believer or not, that we don't know. We really don't know. John chapter 3 is not a believer because Jesus said to him, you must be born again. As far as we know, Nicodemus left Jesus. He wasn't converted. John chapter 19, Nicodemus joins with Joseph of Arimathea to get the body of Jesus and to treat it and prepare it for burial and to get it into the tomb. And Nicodemus is part of that. So Nicodemus occurs three times in the Gospel of John. Beginning in chapter 3, we don't know if he's, we know he's not a believer. John chapter 7, we're not sure if he is a believer, but by John chapter 19, he has become a believer and he's actually come out, as it were, to, uh, to support the Christian cause and to take the body of Jesus as a believer. But in John chapter 7, we're not sure. And there's nothing about anything Nicodemus says that indicates whether he's a believer or not. Really, if we can say anything about Nicodemus, it's this. He is a fair-minded, rational individual. Nicodemus was somebody who was willing to say, let's hear the whole case. And so here's Nicodemus' case. Verse 50, Nicodemus said, verse 51, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? And Nicodemus has just brought up a, a very basic principle of law. It was something that every nation on the face of the planet recognizes, and we recognize this principle today. Look, if you have an accuser, you should have the right, you should have the responsibility, you should have the opportunity to present your case before your accuser, in front of the judge, before the judge renders a verdict and tries to execute you. Does that sound fair? That sounds rational, right? If you're accused of a capital crime, shouldn't you have the opportunity to speak for yourself in front of the judge before he puts out a death warrant on you? That's all Nicodemus is saying. It was a principle of the Old Testament law in the Mosaic Code that they were to hear the great and the small alike and that no judge was to make any judgment in a partial way without hearing both sides of the story and giving everybody an opportunity to present their case because the person who presents their case first seems right until his neighbor comes and examines him. That was the basic principle of the law. If a man is accused, he has a right to face his accusers and he has a right to present his case before the judge. And then the judge will determine the case based upon both sides of the story. That's all Nicodemus is doing. It's not a bold, 
it's not a bold defense of Jesus. He doesn't come out and say, look, I think he's the Messiah. Nicodemus doesn't do that. Nicodemus doesn't even come out and say like the crowd earlier, I think he's the prophet. Nicodemus doesn't say anything positive about Jesus at all. He just brings up a point of law. Should we not hear the man before we execute the man? And here's the irony of it. They had appealed to the law themselves saying, this crowd which does not know the law. And Nicodemus says, since you brought up the law, let's talk about what the law requires. The law requires that we give him a fair hearing. We're not doing that. Shouldn't we give him a fair hearing? Now, look at their response to Nicodemus. Now, keep in mind, Nicodemus is one of their own. Nicodemus is one of their own, and they turn on him. Verse 51, verse 52, they answered him, You're not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. The worst insult that one Pharisee could give to another Pharisee was to suggest that he came from Galilee. Remember how everybody viewed Galilee? Hey, you're not also from Galilee, are you? Have you joined his little band of backcountry fishermen and country preachers? Are you from that despised region? Have you joined forces with this Galilean? Aren't you from, aren't you of more noble birth than to come out in defense of this man? Do you notice what they don't do? They don't say, you know what, speaking of the law, look at Nicodemus, let's discuss that issue of fairness. They, Nicodemus has raised an argument and they don't even address it. They just go right by it. He has basically shown to them that they are in violation of the law by seeking to execute Jesus before they have ever heard of him or ever heard him face to face. They are violating the law and they don't even argue that point with Nicodemus because they can't. What they do say is, oh, you're just a Galilean. You're just a hick. You're just a backcountry bozo. You don't know what you're talking about. Have you joined that crowd too? I mean, that's just a slanderous thing that they label at Nicodemus. You're not from Galilee too, are you? And then they appeal to the scripture, but with an entirely different argument. Search and see that no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. Now that's a claim, and it's wrong on two counts. Now notice what they've done. They have brought up the law, going back to the officers, they have brought up the law and said, the crowd which does not know the law is ignorant. We know the law. Nicodemus says, um, speaking of the law, let's go to scripture. Should we not hear the man before we execute him? They're going to appeal back again to the Scripture on an entirely different point and say, search the Scriptures, you search and see, search the entire Old Testament record and find out if anybody, any prophet has ever come out of Galilee. So they've made the statement, no prophet has ever arisen out of Galilee. That is a, that is wrong on two counts. First, it is wrong because there was at least one prophet that we know for certain came from Galilee. Do you remember what his name was? Jonah came from Galilee. That is a, a record, a matter of historical record. It's indisputable. Jonah did come from Galilee. And most people back then, and there are still a large group of people today that believe that Elijah, Elisha, Amos, and possibly Nahum also came out of Galilee. So it was arguable that at least five of the Old Testament prophets had come out of Galilee. That's the first mistake. It's just a wrong statement that they make. Second of all, what they're doing is they're denying that God can raise up a prophet from wherever God wants to raise up a prophet, right? Look, God could raise up a prophet from Clark Fork if he wanted. Right? That is not impossible for God. If he can speak this whole universe into existence in six little 24-hour days, he can raise up a prophet from among whomever, wherever he wants to. And their statement is just a denial of the power of God. Prophets did come from Galilee, and the truth of the matter was that God could raise up a prophet from among any group of people that he wanted to raise up a spokesman for. Nothing is outside of his capabilities. And they have denied that with their statement. Now you say, well, Jim, they knew the law. 
Are they just ignorant of that one little detail that Jonah came from Galilee? Are they just ignorant of that? What's going on here? How could they miss that? That seems so obvious. Here's what I think is happening. These people are so irrational and hot-headed in their hatred for Christ that they are willing to say almost anything in the heat of the moment to distract from the issue, which is that they want to kill Jesus. It's like somebody who is drunk. People who are inebriated say things under the influence of their inebriation that later, under cooler moments, they regret having ever said. You notice that? It's the same thing with people who are this hostile. I I think that if you were to sit down with the Pharisees two days after this, in, in a cooler moment, and say, what, what do you think about that statement, that argument you made? In all likelihood, they would have said, you know what, that wasn't our strongest argument. That no prophet comes out of Galilee? We forgot about Jonah. But in the heat of the moment, they're willing to say things that later on, really, in the light of truth, sound utterly stupid. Just like unbelievers today. Because the issue is never a lack of evidence. It's what? It's a love for darkness. And these men love darkness. And they absolutely hate Jesus of Nazareth. And we get to the end of John chapter 7. And we have to come to the conclusion, their desire to kill him, which John stated in verse 1 of this chapter, cannot be far away. And indeed it's not. It's not. If they had had their way, they would have done it here. But they can't. But they will do it. They will do it. And they're only six months away from being able to do it. But you see here the hatred that they have. Here's what's, here's what's interesting about their reaction to both the officers and to Nicodemus. Do you notice how over the top it is? Neither the officers nor Nicodemus had suggested that Jesus was the prophet or the Messiah or anything. The officers just said he's a good teacher. And we've become convinced that we just couldn't, we just couldn't overcome what he said. Nicodemus just, he doesn't even defend Jesus in the least. All he did was bring up a point of law. And what did they do? They just, kablammo, I mean, they just unloaded on those poor guys. Because that is their hatred for Christ. You get to the end of John chapter 7, and what do you see? You say that you see the hatred of the religious leadership for Jesus, which is going to manifest itself in a plot to kill him before the end of the Gospel of John. Well, that's John chapter 7. We've reached the end of it. And you say, hold on, Jim. You didn't cover verse 53. Because verse 53 says everyone went to his own home. And you're right, I didn't cover verse 53. And you know why? Because it really belongs with chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. A very interesting section of Scripture, which we will cover next week. Let's pray. Our God, we are thankful to you for what you have done in saving us from our own love for darkness. And if our hearts had had our way, we would have been damned everlastingly. And we thank you that you have delivered us from that, and you have made us to know the light, and that you have made Christ precious to us. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for your kindness and grace. And thank you, O God, for the truth which is revealed in your word. Give us strength to stand upon that truth and to not be intimidated in the face of people who are hostile to your truth, who suppress that truth in unrighteousness and seek only to establish their own righteousness and their own way. We ask, O God, that we might be defenders of your word, lovers of your word, and obedient to it. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.